Okay, so welcome to episode two of the Avalon's Geek podcast. Uh, I would certainly hope that by now everybody knows who I am, uh, but uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, Jake. I'm Jake. Uh, I'm on a few episodes of the YouTube channel, uh, specifically the RP Geek segments, um, hoping to be in more stuff throughout the course of the channel. If I can just get off my butt and actually make some more stuff. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm planning on making some stuff too. Yeah, I'm planning on running uh, some RPG, some RPG segments myself. Uh, hoping to do some D and D stuff here in the near future. As uh, you can guess, I'm definitely into gaming, just of about any kind. But I like gaming on the computer, console, board games, RPGs, cards. If I can sit and have fun with it, preferably with other people involved, I'm on board. Pun yeah, not intended. Yeah, I would say that you're basically into exactly the same stuff that I am because of like everything on the channel so far. Basically, the only thing that you don't do really is cosplay, which is also the thing that I don't do. <laughs> and I definitely am not opposed to dressing up. I just. I can't make stuff. Yeah, you have actually done cosplay, whereas I only have uh, contemplated it so far. So, uh, on the YouTube front, we've put on a few videos, mostly cosplay. In fact, I think all cosplay so far, since coming out of my uh, exhaustion from that insane pace I was managing over January close to being done with another board game the uh grimslingers co-op one that we did it's just there's so much work to do on those board game videos um i, I don't know how i managed it on the first few <laughs> time management i guess you, you um, got into a you got into a real rush in january obsession that too uh, <laughs> but january you were pushing yourself a little bit too hard i think way too hard <laughs> But, um, and of course, uh, I keep coming up with more projects to work on. New things. Because so I got the, the webcomic that I've done one page for uh, so far. But, you know, there's, there's more coming. It's just a matter of plotting out my time yeah. more effectively. And uh, the podcast, like we're doing now, that took... Episodes. <laughs> yeah, took a lot less time to edit down that first one than I expected it to, so I feel like we might be mashing this button a few more times than I was initially planning on, maybe. Because I had this sort of loose six-week release schedule planned out, where there was only going to be like one podcast episode every six weeks. I think I can easily push that to one one a month. Uh, that will still be reasonable. Gotta balance those work schedules. Yeah. Yeah, being full-time, and well, more than full-time. Uh, I think the previous pay period, I worked 102 hours in oh. what should have been an 80-hour period. Yeah. And uh, this pay period, I worked 92. 93 something like that gaming is an expensive hobby if you can't limit yourself to like one thing you're and very few gamers are good at limiting themselves to one thing 
Like, I think I might have met one in yeah. my whole life. Well, and part of that, I think, is just that there's so many different games and so many different communities that all have so little. It's sort of impractical to commit yourself to one game unless it's Magic the Gathering. Or Warhammer 40k. I don't know, even I think Magic is probably the one that you can really, if you want to say, I'm only going to play one game, that's the one that you can play and expect that just about any game shop that you can walk into that you know has gaming areas, that you'll be able to find a game oh, yeah, on any enough. given day. Fair enough. But every other gaming community is so small that you know if one person moves away, that might be it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Or, you know, if somebody has to work a weekend and somebody else just doesn't feel like playing, well, you might be the only one left. <laughs> I was thinking the, um, I was thinking more product rather than people to play with. And that's, that's even more important than having product available is having people to share. Uh, I would say most of the card games that Fantasy Flight makes, especially since the, uh, the buyout by uh, Asmodee, um, they've gotten very, very good at maintaining stock levels. Yeah. So it's a matter of mostly of finding a store that will stock yeah. the stuff, which Fantasy Flight's pretty popular. They, they seem to be in most stores, at least in some quantity. And the bigger the city you live in, the more stuff you're going to have. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I do have some new ideas for projects uh, more for the website than for the YouTube channel since you know, I do want to expand into things other than YouTube yeah which is the other thing that's been preventing me from getting stuff edited and posted to YouTube and whatnot is that I had to do a major overhaul of the website and that's still incomplete um, it still has a lot of the template website <laughs> on it so there's occasionally pictures of sailboats and hotel rooms and <laughs> things. I tried to get rid of as much of that as I could, but uh, there's some of it that still just Lurking will pop shadows. up. Yeah. <laughs> so I've got to hit that very hard soon to get the website back to where it ought to be, to where it's only showing our content and not stuff for this fictional uh, travel agency or whatever it was. And there's a bunch of sample blurbs of like how text looks and where it goes. Uh, that it's all just Latin gibberish <laughs> on there. So there's just paragraphs and paragraphs of Latin on the website in Stop random places. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, another thing that I've been sort of kicking around in the brain uh, is actually just doing writing. Trying to write some stories. And that's something I've tried before. Writing fiction and... It's hard. With mixed results. So one thing I've been thinking was collaboration. Because I know you've done a bit of writing, too. Yeah. Yeah. At least in and, theory. At least on paper. Ah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a dork. Yes. Yes, you are. One idea <laughs> I actually had was... Because there's a very loose character concept I have that I feel like would make an interesting series... And so uh, the, the idea that I've kind of refined it down to now is maybe doing not so much like a novel, because that's kind of a big undertaking oh, for yeah. an amateur writer, um, but something more like a novella, just, you know, 100 pages or so. Um, maybe not even that, like 80, 80 to 100 pages. 
um, something short, but use the same character in like three different stories that are each in different time periods. I'm thinking like it starts off in a medieval fantasy and then second installment is kind of a modern setting and then third installment is very much a sci-fi setting but following the same character that has somehow survived through all these different epochs of <laughs> civilization that poor poor <laughs> oh that would that would suck but i was thinking also each of us this would be like me probably you and i don't know who else cat rights um, but i don't yeah. want to volunteer her for anything she has her own mountain of stuff that she does yes oh oh <laughs> i try so hard to not volunteer people but at the same time i kind of have this obligation i feel like since i'm kind of the one that's trying to kick this self-employment collaborative thing between all of us into actually being viable yeah i feel like i'm sort of obligated to cook up crazy new ideas and go eh? you want to do this eh? Eh? <laughs> like, i don't want to volunteer anybody but this person might actually be perfect for what you're talking about because <laughs> i feel like like, I've tried writing like medieval fantasy before, and it just didn't feel right to me. But I think I could do modern or sci-fi. And so I think one project that might be interesting to do would be to figure out a rough story to take place over these three different time periods, and then each of three writers at the moment assuming like me, you, Cat, um, each take a different period of the story and write them, and then we can pass them around and edit them between each other. That's kind of cool. So that the stories match up, Cohesive. and maybe we make a little, make a few changes here and there to make them Which feel... It would work as novellas, I think, mm -hmm. because you don't have to have a lot of like character-driven subplots. Mm -hmm. And with the huge gaps of time that we're talking about here, you know, you know, some character development has happened. So yeah. if there's slight differences in the character, it's just oh well, it's been 500 years since the last story. Yeah, they're going to be a little bit different. Well, and that leaves room to write further installments without yeah. too much. We can write stuff in between those stories later yeah. on. I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, I'll harp on GW with anybody else just because, like, I love them, but I hate them. But it was one of the things that I thought was super impressive that they did. And that was the, the huge collaborative project that they're still working on, which is the Horus Heresy series models. And the thing that's crazy about it is no two books in a row are written by the same author. Mm -hmm. And that includes the opening trilogy, which follows the same character. Mm hmm at the start of the Horus Heresy. And it's the same, like, it's, it's really the same small group of characters, but it's primarily focused on this one guy. And it's three different authors who, if you read some of their other books, have three drastically different art styles, or writing styles, and they manage to tell this story across three books that keeps the characters the same, keeps them on the same page, the same... Uh, 
you know, there, there's not like random character development where he like acts totally different in the second book because the second mm-hmm. book takes place three days after the first book or whatever. <laughs> but it's that cohesive feel and that cohesive writing style to where yeah. if you didn't know that it was three different authors, you wouldn't think it was three different authors. But those same three authors, you pick any of their other books or series out of the Black Library, and they're totally different. Uh, but then the other third project, which I think is the most likely and probably the easiest to do, would be audio dramas. Because that's, that's, that was an idea. Hell, that was my first idea for us to do collaborative stuff, was um, you know, kind of an audiobook, audio drama production of you know stories, uh, which ultimately I would like to kind of let that lead into us making our own stories and then performing and reading them aloud and putting that up as like podcast or audiobooks or something. That'd be cool. However we can. But my f- thought first to like kind of slow roll into that will, is just that there's plenty of um, public domain stories. Uh, you know, H.P. Lovecraft, I think some of H.G. Wells' stuff. Most of H.G. Wells' stuff. Edgar Allan Poe, I think a lot of his stuff is public domain now. I'm not really sure about that. I'm going to give a soft yes. I want to say yes. Yeah. Given when he died, but copyright law is so crazy convoluted these yeah. days that it's really hard to say for certain if it's open source or not. And so my thought is we could start off by doing productions of those. Like, because everything H.P. Lovecraft is public domain. Yeah. So we could easily start off with a few of the short stories from that and then pull from other stuff as we find it and then. See how that performs, and if it does well enough, uh, if it's fun enough and or uh, lucrative enough, then start doing our own Although the, uh, writing. The, the warning with H.P. Uh, Lovecraft is some of his short stories, quote-unquote, are, are quite uh, long. Are yes. quite long. <laughs> I mean, like, a lot of... We, we pick up a book that's you know, a collection of short stories, and you know they're maybe half an hour of reading for the average reader. Uh, a lot of HPs can get hour and a half, two hours of like a steady pace. Cause like mountains of madness, they have an audiobook version of the mountains of madness on YouTube and it's over two hours long. Wow. I decided to try out audible and I've gotten really hooked on it actually, but, um, I got, um, Ben Crawshaw's book jam that thing is like 14 hours long, something like that. And that's that's a novel. You know? yeah, yeah. Just your typical paperback-sized book. <laughs> well, it's like a cat's been knocking out audiobooks at work and just sometimes at home. She just puts the audiobook in while she's doing her cosplay stuff mm-hmm. or when she's working uh, in, the, in the back at the uh, seamstress. And she'll put a book in. And like, it'll be a book that I'll read, just like actual read through, and I'll be done in like a couple of days mm. and the same book will take her like three days to get through on audiobook. Just a brief cosplay commentary since neither of us are particularly cosplay. Yeah, I'll, I'll model stuff, but I'm not, I'm not making it. So there was a, a, I have gotten very active on Twitter over the last few months. Um, but, um, one of the uh, people that I follow, I suddenly can't remember who it was, 
posted a picture of some glow-in-the-dark rocks that she got for, uh, they're made for, like, making little pet garden paths and stuff, but I think she was putting them in her, uh, planters. Okay. But some of the ones she found, and other ones that I found upon doing a little bit of a Amazon search, was they're really big ones. There's some that are, like, two inches in diameter. Wow. And fairly regular in shape. And I immediately had the thought when I saw those of Eldar cosplay. Oh, yes. <laughs> because they have those little soul gems all yeah, over their armor. <laughs> that would be really cool. Yeah. Which is, of course, why I had to bring it up to you, because you're the other 40k. And then yeah. kind of going the, uh, the reverse, uh, kind of twist on it, a Slanesh cosplay, and just have a necklace of soul stones that you've collected. <laughs> occurred to me. I was like, oh, could make a really awesome Eldar costume with those. Oh, yeah. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, I'm fat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tall enough that I wouldn't look goofy in an Eldar costume, but... Any human being with a remotely healthy BMI is too fat to play an Eldar rely- like, like accurately. Yeah, but you could cosplay like, an Eldar. Yeah, but I look like I'm anorexic. <laughs> But uh, those rocks would also, I was just thinking, um, there's an old anime called uh, Beat the Vandal Buster. Mm-hmm. And the demons in that story, the vandals, have these like stones embedded, in, usually like in their heads or their arms, that mm-hmm. indicate their like power ranking. Mm-hmm. And that could also work really well if you're doing a vandal costume. Yeah, if you had uh, some silicone makeup, so you could make like a like skin around it and to just kind of hold it in place. Embed them in. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, on the topic of rounded stones stuck in people, if you wanted to play the one of the only kind of cool ideas from Dragon Ball GT, the uh, the Dark Dragons, if you wanted to do that, uh. you could. <laughs> I had so many different ideas over the last couple of weeks about different game mechanics to talk about, and I didn't write any of them down. <laughs> this... This little list that we're both sitting here looking at would probably be about three or four times longer if I had. So, Been there. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we may as well skip to the last item on there since we just did a practice game of it. Talk about minis, Rune Wars. Particularly, I think it's the movement that interests me because the flight path system, I grasped, you know, how it works and everything as soon as I started playing X Wing and I really liked it and it felt appropriate. But I also remember thinking, this doesn't feel like it would work well for anything other than, like, dogfights. Using a two-dimensional plane to represent a three-dimensional fight. Now in Rune Wars, Fantasy Flight has taken a slightly modified version of the flight path system and made it work, I feel like, really well yeah. for these ground battles. Oh yeah, especially given that it's set up uh, in a manner similar to... Um, Warhammer Fantasy, old Warhammer Fantasy, and uh, the Lord of the Rings minis game, where yeah, we you have, have trays, trays of formations and trying to measure from the tra- you know the base of the tray, get your distance, especially when you're doing like complex maneuvers, it's such a pain. Like I, I, don't, I don't even want to talk. You know, the strategy of movement is great in those games. You know, whatever. If, if that's your thing, that's your thing. But just the physical act of measuring distance to move in a six-inch arc was staggering. Yeah. 
Yeah. It was way more difficult than it should have been. Yeah. There's a point where the complexity in the name of realism just bogs down the game and makes it not fun. Makes it slow. Which is one reason why I do not miss the movement rules when they moved from Warhammer Fantasy to Warhammer Age of Sigmar. And I gotta say, I love that they have their own trays for the minis. So I don't have to build them out of cardboard or wood like I used to for Warhammer Fantasy. That there are nice standardized trays. That fit whatever you need them to. Yeah. (laughs) And they, they lock into each other just fine. And one thing that didn't occur to me until I played the game was that, while you have less flexibility doing flight path style movement, it actually makes it much more accurate. Because you're not sitting there with a tape measure looking at it at a funny angle as you're reaching to the, you know two-thirds of the way across the table to pivot a unit, hopefully around its corner, but maybe due to the way your hand is putting pressure on the tray, it pivots at a different point. It's just put down your template, hold the template in place, push the tray around so that it's at the end of the template or until it runs into something, and then you're done. (laughs) (laughs) Voila. Nice and simple. (laughs) You know, just playing that was... Like when I saw those flight path templates drop down on the table, I was just like, "Really? That that's how we're moving?" Yeah. And and then when we actually got started playing, I'm like, "Oh, this is this is fantastic! This is great! This is perfect!" I'm, I wish more games did this. Yeah, because while it's you know less realistic, oh no, quote unquote, uh, how dare a fantasy game about <laughs> knights fighting zombies be unrealistic? <laughs> yeah, it's it's less realistic, but it's faster, less complicated, and more accurate. <laughs> And Which is really, fantastic. In a minis game, you can't complain about accuracy. Yeah, uh, movement templates, which I've only really encountered in Flight Path System and in Mercs, seem like a really good way to go with a movement system because it gets rid of a lot of arguing about movement and how far did you go and did you go the right way. Yeah. Well, I put the template down, you saw me put it down, there's your kind of window to say, no, 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 you didn't do that right. And then I moved the thing to the end of the template where it's supposed to be. There's your other window to say, no, you didn't do that right. And okay, now we're done. <laughs> I, can't, I can't keep track of how many 40k games have gotten bogged down by, I think you moved that an inch too far. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, wait, well, uh, yeah, you no, know, yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, I really, I think it's a fantastic system. Uh, far better, I think, than tape measure. Yeah, especially because, as uh, we learned in the past. Uh, not all tape measures are created equal. So. But, you know, I really like the flight path. Yeah. It, it worked really well. Yeah. And uh, I like the, the modified flight path dials that they did where there's, you know, this is what this unit is capable of doing for their different actions, and you can modify their actions with this wheel in this way. And I also like that because we were using that flight path, it made the movement part of the turn so much faster. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, was it there was that, uh, that, that, that one 7K game we played with Dave oh. where it took us an hour to move. our Like, the first turn was just moving across the board, and it took us an hour to move all of our models. Yeah. Because we had to measure for each model, and it was just... Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea of having... 
you know, a stick that I can just drop on the ground and shift everything along the stick, even if I had yep. to move each model individually so much faster. Yeah. Like, absurdly. <laughs> yeah. It's a order of magnitude <laughs> difference in time invested in moving a pile of models from one place to another. And then if, speaking of the, uh, the rank and file, God help you if you're playing a rank and file game and you shift wrong. Yeah. And you've got to, like, go back and start the whole thing over, or, like, and, and, and then models fall off of the tray, and you've got to uh, put all the models back into place and then move it. Yeah. <laughs> Bad times. <laughs> so, standardized base trays that lock the base in place, even just mildly locked in place, just because they're in a depression. Yeah. Points well, to you guys. Those actually lock quite a bit more securely even than that because they have that circular cutout for the base but then there's also a peg in there and there's a little circular socket on the underside of the model to okay. fit onto that peg yeah i think i just had a couple of mine that were just slightly off kilter yeah but they still even being slightly off kilter they still stayed in yeah. place the whole time so, peculiar complaint is that they're so precisely manufactured to fit that putting on a thick layer of primer the way i tend to has made those models not fit as well into their bases. <laughs> so, like, comparing our painting techniques, I would probably be okay with my, my method yeah, of primer. Yeah, you'd be fine. Most people would be fine. I tend to put a thick shell of primer onto my models, and so I'm going to have to take some sandpaper and smooth that down a bit to make them fit better. So, returning to game mechanics, uh, one thing that I... Have thought about a lot because I love doing it is uh, multi-classing in role-playing games. That'll actually make this interesting discussion because I hate multi-classing. <laughs> <laughs> and they were actually talking about multi-classing on uh, Dragon Talk, the D and D podcast, the official one, um, and how they worked, how they planned, and some of the fiddly bits of it in uh, Fifth Ed D and D. But um, it's like. My problem when it comes to multi-classing, I tend to associate it with power gamers. Like, 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 like shameless power gaming. Yeah. Um, That's one thing they brought up in Dragon Talk was that they wanted to make it so you couldn't really cheat the system. <laughs> yeah, which is a nice thing about 5th Ed is because you cap out at level 20, period. Like, like, there's technically an epic tier of play, but instead of getting level 21, level 22, level 23, you simply earn benefits every, I think, like, 100,000 experience, something like that. Yeah. Um, but you just gain these special features as mm -hmm. you level up, uh, or as you hit these thresholds. You stop gaining levels at 20, which means if you multi-class, you are sacrificing higher tier abilities for greater versatility now. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you know if, you, if you pick one you know if, if, if you're like a level 10 fighter and you take one level of rogue congratulations you're never getting the level 20 fighter ability and all of the level 20 abilities are really good yeah seen several over the course of you know playing many 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 different rpgs okay. several different approaches to multi-classing um but yeah there's like D, D style where there is a very set thing that you you know and, and that was one thing they mentioned on Dragon Talk was how there's now prerequisites even to get into regular core classes. Yeah. That they, their idea was, okay, 
you're picking up a new path in life, you need to be, you know, talented enough naturally to be able to do some of that stuff. So, like, I think it's, you have to have a 13 in a particular ability score. Uh, One or more, depending on. Yeah, because there's some of them. I think Ranger has two that you have to meet. Uh, Ranger, Um, Monk, and Paladin all have at least two. I think Paladin is... Because I know there's at least one that has a... You have to have a 13 in either or. Yeah, that's what it is. I think there's like two that have either ors, and then there's one or two that have a this and that ability score. But most of the character classes just have one stat that is clearly the thing that they run off of that you have to have at least a 13 you have to be above average in that ability to be able to just you know and significantly learn. above average at that and yeah a, a 13 there's a there's a issue with a lot of folks where they focus on the bonus and not the score yeah and they forget that a 10 is average and then if you want to get into statistics it's a, a 10 is average and there's like a one-point standard deviation on that. Mm-hmm. So a 13 is three standard deviations outside the norm. Yeah. That's absurdly rare. Yes, that is... Let's see, three standard deviations. That is 99th percentile or higher. Yeah. <laughs> so a, a 13 is... And that's something that like second edition D&D helped get across really, really well just because of the way they talked about the stats that later editions have kind of lost with their focus on bonuses. Yeah. But, uh... And I think the way that 5th Ed D&D has done it was a very good way of doing it, where there's minimum requirements, and you... If you have read any part of the, like, two and a half pages about multiclassing, you are well aware that you're losing future stuff in order to get this weird sort of versatility built into your character. Um, which I think was a lot of fun. I yeah. love multi-classing. I, I am hard-pressed to not multi-class anytime I have an opportunity to. Um, kind of the extreme other end of uh, how to do multi-classing, I feel like, is the Star Wars games that Fantasy Flight made. Um, where you have the career set and then the uh, specialization within that. And when you get enough experience to afford it, you can buy access to another career if you want. But you have to actually spend experience that you would otherwise spend on leveling up. Yeah, but it's very piecemeal. I want to multi-class just enough to get this one ability from this other career that I feel like is going to be very synergistic or, you know, story appropriate for my character to have. But I'm still going to mostly be this thing, this other thing that I am. And the cool thing with, like, the reason that works really well with the Star Wars system is the Star Wars class system, quote-unquote, isn't really a class system in the way that we think of it, like with games like D anD D. Yeah, it's much looser. Much looser, much more modular. It's 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 yeah. a bunch of pieces. Yeah, it's it's like a circuit board more than a than a class. Yeah, and it's <laughs> because you have access to all the skills that exist in the game all the time, no matter what. It's just 
the ones that match your career are cheaper and easier for you to advance. And then the special talents and abilities, while there's a specific progression for each specific specialization, a lot of the abilities repeat across. Yeah. Across. I was playing a, um, it was a hired gun was the career and then my specialization was heavy. So I just, you know, big guns and, you know, super tough, super strong. And I ended up buying my way into, I can't remember what it was called, but it, it was because I just wanted to get this one ability that would let me clear a room. Just just, just clear all the minions in the room as I sprayed fire all over the uh, Well, that's one of the special abilities that you can pick up once you get two of the four top-tier talents yeah. on a tree. But I remember you did buy into some other career. I forget what the hell it was, though. And it may be better at shooting things. <laughs> That's all I really remember. Yeah. But, yeah. So that those, I feel like, are kind of the extreme opposite ends of, you know, if you want to dump your experience into it to get one ability, and you want to do this with, like, five different classes, well, careers, but you can do that on the Star Wars end of the spectrum. But then on the D&D end, you've got, you know, okay, you have to meet a requirement, and you're starting off at, like, the novice level, and then you're kind of, with the way they did it in 5th edition, you're kind of obligated to put in about four levels yeah. worth of it, because the smart way of multiclassing in that is in increments of four. Like, you take, you start multiclassing at level five, what is it, five, nine, thirteen, or seventeen, and even then... Because if you do it before... If you do it a level or more before any of those, you don't get your stat increases. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's actually a little bit better to do it in increments of five. Because fifth level and like those five level... Fifth level milestones are where you get a lot of like the iconic... Because like, like, like for spellcasters is where you get the third level spells, which is where a lot of the iconic spells are. Yeah, the well, and where a lot of the get their, powerful stuff is. Yeah, the warriors get their extra attack. Uh, the rogues get a lot of their extra special abilities that yeah. can help really make them useful. Yeah, though I still feel like increments of four is better because specifically when it comes to spellcasters, you can fit the same amount of firepower that you would get out of, say, a fireball, a third level spell, into a... Um, Ray of Heat, I think it's called. The the You can get a comparable amount of damage by using your highest level slots for the spells. Right, because uh, unlike 3rd edition and 5th edition, when you multi-class two spellcaster classes, you get a whole new chart for how your spells develop. Yeah. Whereas in, like, 3rd edition, it's like, okay, well, I'm a 5th I'm a level sorcerer, so I have this many spell slots of this kind... And I'm a fifth level wizard, so I have this many spell slots of this kind. Multiclassing as a spellcaster was a terrible idea in third edition, uh, because you now you really can. You just wrecked your power curve. You never got powerful enough to do anything on the level that a single class character could. If you yeah, were a spellcaster, really magical character. We had a we had a third edition campaign a while back where we had a guy that when he made his character, he decided he wanted to be a prestige class called the Mystic Thurge. Which the concept of the class, for those of you that don't know, is that it was somebody who had 
studied the secrets of the universe, and so they could channel both arcane and divine energies mm -hmm. with equal uh, talent and skill. Um, so he was leveling his character as a multi-class wizard cleric, and was just like basically interchanging levels of wizard and cleric. And by the time they got to like seventh or eighth level, everyone in the party was really good at something. The, 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 the fighter could clear a room, just basically dervish through it with her great sword and just clear everybody out. Mm -hmm. The rogue could practically disappear from right in front of you. Um, but this this guy was just pitiful by comparison. Yeah. So like he could he could throw some good, you know, cannon attacks and he could he could heal a little bit. But he only had one really good spell out of each class that he could mm -hmm. use. Yeah, that was a bad time. Uh, trying to multi-class as a spellcaster <laughs> of any kinds. But especially, it, especially shifting between two different kinds of spellcasters. Yeah, if you combined a martial class and a spellcasting class, there were some interesting things you could do there. But really multi-classing the best course of action was two martial classes two non-spellcasters because then you could get some interesting synergy between class abilities and they could stack up in interesting ways but even then you still generally wound up less significantly less powerful than an equivalent level character that was one class yeah but something i feel like is kind of right in the middle of the spectrum of those two severities is through the breach because through the breach requires a short-term commitment <laughs> to a class yeah and it really kind of encourages you to multi-class in interesting ways since <clears throat> since the game suggests that the game master or fate master um tells you at the beginning of the session or at the end of the previous session what this session is going to be focused on whether it's you know a combat heavy session or a social heavy session or skills you know investigation that kind of thing and so you can <clears throat> each session you can change what is essentially your character class so that you are something that will be useful based on what you have been told by the Fate Master. Because if you're going to do a big, lengthy social encounter, it's not going to generally be very useful for you to be, you know, getting a lot of card draws based on gunfighting. <laughs> so you can change your skill set somewhat in a, in a sort of uh, in a way of thinking and then you know at the end of the session you go up a level in that particular pursuit and so you pick up a new ability for it but you're not obligated to ever go back to it if you don't want to so it lets you build a very unique sort of skill set on your character because every ability is really good Everything you can pick up at any tier on those pursuits is pretty awesome. And a lot of time, a lot of them, I think it's half of them actually, uh, in most of the pursuits, you get a choice between this specific ability or that specific ability. And so if you plan ahead, you can 
make a very unique sort of character by taking this ability from this pursuit and these abilities from another pursuit and combining them all together because a lot of the stuff in there is very loose and works well with abilities from just about anything else. And part of the reason I think it works the way it does in Through the Breach is because the class system in Through the Breach is more of a... Like, in D&D and a lot of role-playing games, your class represents your career. It's something that you've focused yourself into for a long time, mm-hmm. and you've tr- actively trained and prepared yourself to do. And it's, it's again, it's, it's a job. Whereas in Through the Breach, the classes are more like areas of interest. Yeah, it's, what am I doing to get by right now? Kind of. Because, like, you know, you have a, a pioneer in Through the Breach is just a guy who right now needs to be really good at getting from point A to point B and not dying there. Yeah. Whereas, say, a ranger in D&D is somebody who has actively focused their entire life on surviving in the wilderness and hunting down the evil things that dwell in the wild places of the world. It's two totally different concepts. Functionally kind of similar, at least at low levels, but But conceptually very different. And it's almost as if throughout gameplay you are building a, a class unique to that character. Yeah, definitely. Just by the choices you make for what pursuits to pick up and at the key points when you accomplish a a step of your fate and you can pick up either an improvement to your ability score or get a... You can get a manifest power and make some interesting signature stuff for your character to be able to do. There's also two other systems that I think kind of have an interesting way of handling this phenomenon. Uh, Unhallowed Metropolis and the old, um, the now outdated, no, non-existent uh, Fantasy Flight Warhammer 40k RPGs. Uh, the first one I'm going to do is Unhallowed. Unhallowed, you pick a career when you make a character, like a lot of games. And like in D&D, this is a specific area of focus. However, unlike D&D, it comes with a specific role that you fill within society. It's, it's not just like, like, you know, if you're a fighter, well, a fighter can be a mercenary, a fighter can be a gladiator, a fighter can be a farmer who picked up a sword in, during a war, or it can be a noble. Whereas in Unhallowed, an undertaker is a specific job that you perform for the government. A, an aristocrat is a wealthy person who has access to you know, resources, etc., etc. These are all actual jobs that you do as your character. The customization, the sort of equivalent to multiclassing in this game, comes from the fact that you your character is defined more by their skills than by anything else. And while your class, your career, or your calling, that's what they call it, your calling is a, um, it helps set the foundation and it gives you your starting set of skills and you know how you want to spend those base beginning points as you level your character up, you have access to everything and you can level everything up at whatever rate you choose. So you can start with a, you know, say like a Death Watch soldier who's this very martial military character and spend the rest of your character development 
becoming a socialite and putting everything into your social skills and your charm stat. Whereas when you started off, you were just, you know, a hulking bruiser. Now you're this well-spoken social elite member of the Death Watch that interacts with the aristocracy. And I feel like has a big walrus mustache that attaches to his mutton chops or to his, his sideburns. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but then you have the um, the old uh, Warhammer 40k RPGs that Fantasy Flight Games put out, where you have a like specifically like Dark Heresy and Death Watch were the big ones, where you pick a career sort of for Death Watch, but you pick your class when you make your character and you level up rank to rank uh, as you proceed through the game. And once you've picked your career, you can't change that. It's, it's you know, once you choose that you're an arbitrator, that's what you're doing for the rest of the game. If you're playing Death Watch, once you pick, once you choose to be a tactical marine, you're a tactical marine for the rest of the game. But then they have these things called advanced specializations or advanced careers, depending on the game, that you buy your way into that give you some extra abilities and access to new tables that you can level up from and you could only ever take one and it just put a new spin on the way that you could level up your character in a system that already had a fairly flexible way to level up a character to begin with and so it was an interesting way of like both of these games have this interesting way of you know locking you into character creation for a specific career path but you can totally go wibbly wobbly all over the place with it once once you start leveling yeah, that's a nice thing uh, because that that got to me the first time I ever played one of the forty k RPGs was that what I there's no way for me to get outside of this one box that I put my character in starting off, which was technically true but also kind of untrue because I didn't know at the time just how many different things you still have access to it's just because it was such a different system from anything i'd ever played but yeah yeah they did have an interesting approach to it i feel like it could have been a little looser but that's because i really like multi-classing and bolting on pieces from other sets to (laughs) (laughs) make something my own the the, the game you're complaining about you wanting it to be looser was black crusade which was actually The the loosest system in the entire line (laughs) <laughs> yep <laughs> I like that was the one that had like the most freedom for building your character because you're you know, this degenerate outcast from society you can do whatever <laughs> you want but but you technically couldn't multi-class <laughs> yeah but it's just really different interesting ways to handle the same phenomenon of I want to be a thing but not just that thing. Yeah. Um, the Iron Kingdoms RPG and Unleashed, I feel like, had a almost a good approach to multiclassing. It's just a little clumsy. Which I, 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 I liked where they had it at, you know, at key points through character progression, you get an opportunity to add a new career. You only get three chances, but they're at pretty well-spaced-out points throughout character progression. But what I thought was very badly done in that is that 
at that same point, that same experience level where you choose either to get a career or something else, what you're giving up is an archetype ability. The archetype abilities are really powerful. Like, um, being able to see the runes of magic and understand what they mean and what kind of magic they are. Or being able to, um, you know, spend a feat point to make another melee attack. Yeah. Those are really powerful. And what did you get if you gave that up to pick a new career? Access to your skill set. You have access to the talents on that career, and you got two points of occupational skills, which it was kind of, you know, implied that you should spend those on on skills from that new career, but you didn't have to. And the skills were not that valuable in that game. You know, there's, there's, there's a handful of skills. Like, you might have one skill in that game that you just rely on, and it's usually the one yeah. that you fight with. Yeah. Or if you're a magic user, your lore skills can be very yeah. important once you start delving into the uh, Wild Adventure expansion. Yeah. But starting off as you know as a starting character you get i think in some cases three or four talents at character creation because those are the things that make you a member of that career you need those abilities to actually be one of them but then when you transition into it during gameplay you get nothing in exchange for an extremely powerful ability that you only get a few opportunities to pick up. Yeah. Which I feel like it is worth not getting you know, everything that you would get at character creation. But I think what they should have done with that is that you get one. You get one of the talents from what a character gets when they start off as that career. When you pick the career up at that level. Speaking of... And the two occupational skill points, but... I feel like you have to spend them on skills from that career that you don't already have. Although, <laughs> the absolute worst multi-classing system I have ever seen in any game ever. We can talk about a lot of good stuff. I want to talk about something that's just garbage. <laughs> the worst was the old, old Warhammer Fantasy, fantasy roleplay. The new fantasy role, really? Warhammer Fantasy roleplay was a little bit better, but not a lot better. But the old fantasy roleplay was awful and that was the one that i participated in where i played a bounty hunter yeah right okay the the more traditional styled one okay yeah the 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 worst thing about it i think that made it like again garbage it was mandatory you could not not multi-class oh right right because once you hit a certain level you had to move into a new class from the more advanced classes set and so you, right. like, you could technically move laterally into another class that was on the same tier of play, but that wouldn't really help you a whole lot. And so as your character advances through the game, you have to change careers. Like, you can't just be, okay, I'm a soldier and just play a soldier for the rest of the game. It's, I'm a soldier, now I'm a knight, now I'm a general. Which and, I can kind of see where they were going with that, but... But they, they made it mandatory, and to level up into a class, one of the first things you had to do was you had to acquire all of the trappings of that class. 
So, like, if you wanted to be, go from a a soldier to a knight, you had to get you had to get your hands on full plate armor and either a great weapon or a lance and a horse. And then when you wanted to become a general, you had to get a hold of an army. <laughs> you had to actually spend money to hire soldiers to fight for you so that you could actually call yourself a general. Again, I can kind of see where that's going, but it's making a very big assumption that it knows where you want to go. <laughs> and then all of the classes in that game were really, really restrictive, too. Yeah, they were. So you I had you had, a, you had a really, like, a very set path that only went one direction, and it would come to a fork in that road that would lead you in... A different, extremely restrictive path. <laughs> and it was just, and, and, and it was mandatory. You know, in all of these other games, you don't have to multiclass. You can, you can be the generic dude. You, you, you could be a fighter and go level one to twenty and be a fighter, and you can just never do anything else and do whatever mm-hmm. you want and be happy. But this game required you to change classes periodically, like on a regular basis throughout the game. Like I think it was. Uh, like you went through four classes in like I think a twelve session campaign, something like that. Like I think we only played for like three or four months. You were you were changing classes like once a month almost. Because you went from huh. bounty hunter uh, to, to vampire, vampire hunter, hunter. I remember that to witch hunter, and then I want to say from witch hunter you went into like a some kind of a knight class from that. Did I ever go witch hunter? I thought you made it to the witch hunter. I don't think I did. I might be. I might be just. Be generally angry at the game still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I remember going vampire hunter because we... Uh, hunted a vampire. Hunted a vampire that very nearly killed my character. And one of the other characters got injured really badly protecting me. And so I made them a weapon out of the vampire. <laughs> uh, I no, remember what I that. Of, what I was thinking of is there was another game we played in that where it was a, a dwarf. And he was going the Slayer path. Oh, Lord. And so he started off as a Troll Slayer, went into a Giant Slayer, went into a Dragon Slayer, went into a Demon Slayer. And he went through all the tiers of the Slayer. And we were giving out, like, the recommended amount of experience per session. Mm-hmm. And he probably made it through, like, four or five classes in an absurd amount of time. Like, he went, like, the full progression of a Slayer in maybe maybe four to six months of play. Lord. Like, once a week. <laughs> it was... It was insane, the the, the 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 speed at which you had to hit those checkpoints and change yeah. class. That's that's yeah. It's so worst. long ago I don't remember <laughs> yeah, it was, much of it, but well, like the, the, that game's multi-classing system is so bad that when you combine it with uh, the fact that it's mandatory, I had gamers refuse to play it. <laughs> like they would rather not play anything at all then play that because at least not playing anything at all they were making a choice <laughs> yeah that, that's a really bad combination of having extremely restrictive precise classes and mandatory class changing like you can have super strict precise classes D kind of has that yeah especially the further back in D you go yeah like multi-classing in some form has always been available even back into first edition, but it was way harder back then. It was much more difficult, and it didn't work terribly well <laughs> um, in most cases. Like elf. Yeah, which the elf was, I think, actually its own class in first. Jeez, um, because it was basically a hybrid of fighter and wizard. Makes sense. 
but yeah. Um, so yeah, you can be really strict with like what you're allowed to do in a class because for some players, that's very satisfying to get a yeah. very precise concept to play. Like I said at the start of this, I hate multi-classing. Yeah. So when I pick up a character and I decide I'm going to play a fighter, I'm going to play a paladin, I'm going to play a wizard, I commit. Yeah. And I stay in that class and I don't do... Like, I might pursue a skill that's outside of the norm for that class, but I'm sticking with that class. I think the one time I've ever been able to do that was when we did that evil campaign and I was the bard and I just pursued the disguise skill to an absurd degree. <laughs> Yeah, they didn't find out that his character, both both in and out of character, they did not find out that his character was a female until, I think it was like three or four months of real time, which amounted to about, I think, like almost a year in the game. And I don't think they ever were 100% sure what species she was. Yeah, I don't think they ever found out what species she because was. Because every day in game, she changed her species and gender appearance and the other characters could only recognize her by a signet ring <laughs> that she yeah, wore. Uh, I think Brantley was actually convinced your character was a shapeshifter. Like he thought I was letting you play a doppelganger. He was kind of he was kind of pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Reasonable assumption, considering how well she was, how well disguised she was. Because I think they, when the game started, it was like a level ten campaign, and so you had like. I think it was like your modifier was almost a 20 on your disguise checks. Yeah. <laughs> like between your skill points, your charisma bonus, and, and some uh, abilities and feats that I picked up. Yeah. yeah it, it was like a 1d20 <laughs> plus 20 for a check that has a base difficulty of like 15. <laughs> like like two. The, yeah. the only reason we even made him roll it was because everyone else was going to roll perception the minute he walked out of his tent. I enjoyed picking a, a thing to do. And I don't know why, where I even got the idea to do that. It was just so, an idea that popped into my head during character creation. And I just couldn't let it go. <laughs> but um, I think we've beaten the uh, multi-classing yeah, it's, it's, talk it's pretty just, well. <laughs> It is a necessary part of roleplay. Yeah. I will never deny that it's necessary. I just hate it. Because there's there's always going to be somebody that wants to cobble things together either out of curiosity or just that they feel like it's appropriate to the character. Or, I want the biggest bonuses. Yeah. The power-attacking, sneak-attacking barbarian. <laughs> but, uh, I, I like that you know, D&D was kind of this place where that got the worst. The the power gaming aspect of multi-classing. And they fixed that pretty well yeah. in 5th Ed. Because there's a lot of different things that, at a glance, you think, Oh, I can combine this and this. And then, if you really read in depth on those descriptions of how they work and everything... And maybe use Twitter to contact, uh, I forget his name, but there's a guy that on the podcast, he addresses a lot of rules stuff. Yeah. And he talks about, you know, people contact him a lot with rules questions. And so he clarifies on the podcast how a lot of the rules work. Most things that 
a power gamer is going to look at and go, ooh, I can bolt those two things together and get a huge bonus, there is somewhere in the descriptions of them where they explicitly do not stack. Yeah. And it's, you pick the better one. Yeah. Or the one that you want. <laughs> and you can switch them. Every single time, you would trigger both. You can pick which one you're going to use, and you can use a different one every time, but you're not going to get both. <laughs> and then they helped balance that out. like They're kind of like you know throwing a carrot in with a stick by adding in the archetype system in 5th edition. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, by level 3, everybody's picked sort of a subclass within their class. Yeah. And a lot of those replicate a lot of the classic... Um, multi-classing concepts. And prestige classes. Yes, and prestige classes. They, they folded a lot of those into just the archetypes. Like the uh, the classic, the Arcane Trickster and the Eldritch Knight for the mm -hmm. Rogue and Fighter, respectively. Um, it's just at level three, you can decide your fighter and or, or rogue, whichever they are, can now cast magic. So I think we also wanted to talk about uh, board games. Card games in particular. In particular, because um, this is something that I've been dwelling on a lot is card games and different sort of the, the skeleton mechanics in card games because that's what I've played the most of. Uh, and so getting down to like a very root, you know, thing, something that's very, you know, consistent, you know, there's a something you have to have in every card game. Sort of one of the, the skeleton pieces of any good, good card game is maximum copies per deck. Yes. Thank God for maximum copies. Like, like, there are times, I'll admit, where I wish there was, I could just have one more. One and more and I feel like that's a good maximum copies rule, is when you get that feeling of, man, I wish I could just have one more of those. You, you, you hit the, you hit the <laughs> That's point. the sweet spot. <laughs> because, like... And I have the classic one, we're going to go back to Magic on this one. The reason Magic started doing maximum copies per deck. Um, this might not be the only reason, there's probably lots of cards that you could do this with, but the biggest one was the uh, Relentless Rats deck. Which was a 40 card deck, and it was an expensive deck, but people did this. It was a 40 card deck that contained 20 copies of Black Lotus and 20 copies of Relentless Rats. So you would play one Black Lotus, tap it, sacrifice it, get three black mana, which you would then use to play a Relentless Rats card. Okay. Well, Black Lotus had a zero mana cost you could play for free. Well, Relentless and because Rats, it's not a land, you can play as many of them as you want. So <laughs> you were basically guaranteed to drop most of your hand on any given starting turn. First turn, drop your whole, basically your whole hand. Well, the thing that made Relentless Rats really bad was Relentless Rats gets plus one, plus one for each other creature named Relentless Rats. Okay. So when you are dropping nothing but Relentless Rats throughout the game, their power climbs yeah. <laughs> really fast. You, know, you get three of them out, and they're all four fours. You, know, you drop the, the fifth one, and it just gets really ugly really fast. Yeah. And so they would have people build entire decks just around these two cards. I mean, that's that's not the point of the game. It's, it's a... It's a waste of the potential and it wasn't the only combo but it's one of the most famous combos mm. of just stupid things people did with that game to break it yeah huh. i don't remember that because i i wound up playing magic only in the absolute worst period of years <laughs> of the game and uh I just oh it was so terrible i got back into it briefly and i still have 
the stuff that I got when I got back into it. Well, I've got a bunch of the cards that are sitting in boxes in my house, but I don't play anymore. Yeah. But, um, so now, currently in Magic the Gathering, it is, unless otherwise stated on the card, four copies maximum, with the exception of basic lands. Basic right? lands, uh, yep. Uh, there's technically an addendum to that if you play in tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a, um, there are, of course, band lists for tournaments. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, and if I remember correctly, they do have, like, tiers of restricted lists that limit it down to, like, three, two, or one copies ah. of, like, very specific, very powerful, right. borderline game-breaking cards. Yeah. But, uh... So then there's, you know, let's see, um, the Arkham Horror LCG is maximum copies two. Cannot have more than two copies of any particular card in the deck, which is kind of tense. But it's also a fairly small deck. It's, I think, 33 or 32 cards, something like that. I think it's 33. That's a random. (laughs) <laughs> because well it's because every every uh, investigator has a signature like goodie that they bring with them typically an asset card like Roland's 35, 38 special um, such a good gun <laughs> and then they also have a specific weakness card that they bring um, so again in Roland Banks's case it's the um, cover up weakness and then each investigator also gets one randomly selected generic weakness card. Okay. And those cards go into the deck, but you get, unless otherwise stated, because I think there's some differences on some characters that haven't come out yet, but with the core set, it's you build a 30-card deck, and then you add those three cards to it. Okay, that makes sense. So it's, it's only a 33-card deck, so pretty small. Yeah. But of course it can grow with experience you. if you do campaign play, which is also why it starts off so small, so that you don't have this asininely fat deck of cards by the end of a long campaign. <laughs> There's actually another, because um, it just reminds me of like, the games where you have, uh, you collect cards throughout the game to increase your deck. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Pathfinder RPG deck building game. Yeah. Um, there's no maximum copy of like the cards you can hold in your deck, but at the end of every session, you throw out down to your maximums. It's like you have a you have a not even maximums. You have a set number of like like say the fighter. He has a set number of weapon cards, a set number of armor cards, a set number of magic cards. You know, there's there's only so many of each type that you're allowed to have in your deck. So you collect a whole bunch of stuff throughout the game, but then at the end of the session, you have to give everything. Like you, you pick the stuff out of the pile that you want to keep the most, and everything else has to go back. So while there's no cap on the number of cards of each, number of copies of each card you can have, there's a cap on the number of cards you can have in your deck from game to game. Hmm. That's cool. So that kind of helps keep it from getting just too over the top. Right. Netrunner. Netrunner has a maximum copies three. So you have up to three copies of any given thing in the deck, with a few exceptions. In the Mumbad cycle, they introduced a couple of cards. I think there's one for every faction that is maximum copies six. Wow. And they, they have a very 
atypical deck construction in Netrunner, and that's that the identity that you pick, so either the corp or the runner that you pick to use, has a specific... Uh, they have a deck size minimum. The lowest that any of them go is 40 cards in the deck, and the highest that any of them go is 50. And actually, the only number in between those is 45. So hmm. Most of them are 45 card limit. There's a few 40s, and there's a few 50s. But those are the minimum number of cards you can put in. You can go over that all you want. But, but you of course, your deck down. the farther you go, the bigger the deck is, the harder it is to get anything. Um, Especially with a two-card or sorry, a three, three card limit. Especially with a three card limit, you really don't want to go super high. Yeah. Well, and especially because you like, there's so many different approaches to winning that game that you have to build a little bit of a way to compensate for a few of them, or build something that runs on your win condition as fast as you possibly can and just hope that your opponent can't outspeed you <laughs> but um that i think was a really interesting thing that they did where there was just a few cards that can go up to six copies and if i remember right all of them have a x you know effect that counts the number of that card that is i think most if not all of them are the number of that card that is in your discard pile. Okay. Yeah, the, um... Just got me thinking on the minimums. Uh, every game has a sweet spot on a deck. Mm -hmm. They don't They don't ever tell you what that sweet spot is. You have to, you have to it's usually it. the minimum. But it's usually the minimum. Uh, like, with Netrunner, the sweet spot for runners is typically exactly the minimum. With Corp, it's typically four cards above the minimum because the corp has agenda cards which are the nefarious schemes that you're up to as a corporation that both you and the runner are trying to get hold of as the corp you're trying to complete your dastardly plans the runner is trying to find out what they are and expose them well uh, you have to contain each deck has to contain a certain number of points worth of agenda cards. Okay. The agenda cards generally are one, two, or three points a piece. There's, I think, one that is a four-pointer. I don't think there are any five-point ones, and there's a single one that's a six-point card. Uh, you only need seven points to win the game, but the six-pointer, you're only allowed to have one copy in the deck. Okay, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> because it gets you almost to winning. Yeah. But um, you have... A certain number of those you have to have, and it's it's actually a range. It's I think twenty to twenty-one. If your card, if your deck is forty to forty-four cards, and it's it's um, twenty-one to twenty-two points worth of agendas, I believe. If you have a forty-five to forty-nine card deck, and it's it's similarly the range goes up by two at every increment of five cards. Okay. in the deck so that's why the sweet spot for corp decks is typically four cards above the minimum for them because you get the most cards you can possibly have without having to add in more agendas 
along a similar subject there is unique cards. And so if I remember right, in Magic the Gathering, you have a unique card in play. If you put another copy of it into play, they both get discarded, correct? I'm not 100% sure on the most current ruling. Because mm-hmm. I know it used to be that if like you played a legendary creature and I played the same legendary creature, they would both die. And then they changed it to where we could each have one copy of that legendary creature. Right. Uh, and then if I played, like if I had one and then I played another one of him, they would both die. Right. I think, and I've been out of the game for a while, I think that the current incarnation of it is you play a legendary creature, the new one replaces the old one. Ah. Hmm. And I think part of that was because of the Planeswalkers. Mm-hmm. They have so many of the same Planeswalker, but they're different. Yeah. So like, like you'll have like, 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 I'm just going to make up names here. You know, you have Jared Pie Sculptor, and then later on you have Jared King of Pies. Well, if you play Pie Sculptor and then you play King of Pies, Pie Sculptor goes away and you leave King of Pies, as right. opposed to both of them exploding. Right. <laughs> um, there's a couple of things that I've seen with you know different ways of dealing with unique cards, and that was, of course, my first encounter with it was because uh, I believe back when I started playing Magic, yeah, that was during the days of if two copies are in play for the same player, they immediately both kill each other. I like the fluff explanation for it, because uh, you know the concept of the game is that you're a wizard that's summoning stuff. Right. You can't summon two of the same person without creating like a paradox, and that's why they both get destroyed, is because you're splitting him in two, trying to hold him, in, to summon him into two places at the same time. Cute idea. <laughs> but mechanically, that kind of sucks. <laughs> um, so, kind of the other end of that is what Netrunner does. If you have a unique thing in play in Netrunner and you get another copy in your hand, you just can't play that card. (laughs) I think. It may be that you can put it into play and then you have to immediately discard the other one. I'm suddenly not entirely sure. (laughs) I know in um, Conquest, uh, it was... You couldn't play it. Yeah. In Conquest, if you had a unique character or item... Or whatever. You had to wait for it to die. <laughs> you had to wait for it to die to be able to play the other card. Right. Uh, so that's why you don't really have the maximum number of uniques in your deck. Yeah. So that's the other end of kind of a, the other way of being really stiff about unique things. Now, there's a couple of games that I've seen that have, I think, the best possible approach to unique cards. One of those is the Game of Thrones LCG. In that, if I have, let's say, Ned Stark in play, and then I have another Ned Stark in my hand, even if it's not the same version of him, I can. what I can do is I can't put that second copy into play, no matter what. Like, while the you know Ned Stark 1 is in play, Ned Stark 2 cannot enter play. But what I can do with Ned Stark 2 is I can, for zero gold, doesn't cost me anything, I can put that copy, that, that Ned Stark 2, into play face down underneath Ned Stark 1 as a duplicate. And the duplicates are treated as having the text that amounts to when something would discard or kill the card 
that this is a duplicative, you can discard the duplicate instead to satisfy that. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. It's, just a, it's, a, it's a get out of death free card. So in like, like a fluff story uh, point of view, it's a character, you know, it's, it, it's a, you know, a named important character finding some way to dodge whatever machinations your opponent have thrown yep. at him to kill him. Yep. Um, so Which, that, I think, is a fantastic way to deal with uniques because then you have a reason to still take the maximum copies of your uniques and you have a way to use those copies even after you get the first one in play. That's cool. <laughs> now, the downside is if that first one goes into play, if Ned Stark 1 is in play and I have Ned Stark 2 in my hand, if something kills Ned Stark, then he goes to my dead pile and all my Ned Starks cannot enter play anymore because there's a dead Ned Stark. <laughs> Ned Stark is dead, so no other version or duplicate of him can enter play. Because so you actually have an incentive to, oh, I drew an X copy of this unique person. I need to get that in play now <laughs> so that it remains useful because there's not a whole lot of things that will discard a character. Most of the time when a character leaves play, they're dead. <laughs> uh, the other really good approach to that that I have seen in a game, which is another one made by Fantasy Flight. Um, they make a lot of good games. That technically doesn't even exist yet is Legend of the Five Rings. In Legend of the Five Rings, when you put a personality into play, you pay their cost in fate, but you can then pay additional fate to put fate on them. Basically, let's say I, I pay two fate for this character, they're in play, I can then immediately spend, let's say, five fate to put five fate on them. At the end of the turn, I believe it is, every character that has fate on them, you remove one fate. Okay. Every character that does not have any fate on them gets discarded. Because they have completed the part of their destiny that involves your clan war that you're having, and so they have to move on to something else. Huh. So... The thing they've done with uniques in there is if I put a unique into play, if I turn up another unique character, another copy of that person, I can discard it to put one fate on the unique that's already in play. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> kind of similar to the, the, the duplicates thing in, or in uh, Game of Thrones. But, but at the same time, very appropriately different. Yep. <laughs> Did you know the, the, the Game of Thrones one, it feels more like you're being sneaky to get out of getting murdered, which is very appropriate to yeah. the Game of Thrones, whereas the Legend of the Five Rings is more a more like you're discovering more of your destiny. Yes. And it's like, oh, I'm not done here yet. Yeah. <laughs> which is, again, very appropriate to that setting. Yes. I'm, lo I'm really looking forward to that card game coming back. Yeah. So that's uh, been the second episode um, of the Alon's Geek podcast. Uh, I don't know who I'll be talking with next time, but... Uh, might be me, might be Cat, might be somebody else entirely. Probably someone that you'll have seen on the YouTube channel, though. Well, seen or heard, since the board game videos are mostly just our hands. 
Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Tasty space elf soul.